On this episode of the Cutting Edge Podcast, how leadership can address anxiety about returning to the office. And so it doesn't always have to be sort of work, 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 that we can we can offer a little bit of humanity in there. <laughs> and shaping the workforce around IT's expanded role in teaching and learning. Compassion, empathy for our constituents and our clients, and also for ourselves. Those are really big, important aspects of being able to navigate the world we're in now. I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is Cutting Edge, where we talk to decision makers about what's next in higher ed IT and online learning. The National Education Technology Plan is getting its first refresh since 2017. The U.S. Education Department's Office of Education Technology announced a search for a contractor to run the logistics of creating the plan, which will serve as a guidance document for policy as well as for K-12 districts, higher education institutions, and nonprofits. The process starts with a technical working group made up of higher education experts who can begin shaping the plan's priorities. Class, a virtual classroom company, plans to buy Blackboard's Collaborate from Anthology, the administrative tools vendor. Anthology and Blackboard merged last year, but Anthology is spinning off Collaborate, focusing on its LMS business. Class CEO Michael Chasen, who previously founded Blackboard, said Class and Collaborate will run side by side for a time before merging the two products. The University of Central Florida recently hired Paul Dozel as his senior vice president for student success, tapping into his experience in predictive analytics. Dozel had been in a similar position at the University of South Florida, where he oversaw the use of data tools to improve metrics like graduation rates. Those metrics are key to Florida's performance-based funding of its public universities. Find all these stories and more at edscoop.com. This week, we're talking about seemingly one of the most common challenges facing higher education IT departments post-pandemic, burnout. For Jacqueline Malcolm, Vice Chancellor of IT for Minnesota's state colleges and universities, fighting anxiety around return to work and major projects requires communication. That means setting expectations around what a hybrid workplace looks like, when to respond to emails, and attend meetings, she said. Well, I started at another um, system uh, when when the pandemic started and moved during COVID into this particular system. So it does give me um, an opportunity to, to, to see sort of in differing states how the pandemic affected IT workforce. And one thing I can say is that it, it really affected all of us in, in many similar ways, right? And um, pivoting off quickly uh, from campuses, how we deploy technology to students who um, aren't just on campus, that, but that are sort of far and wide, if you will, and how we do that quickly and how we think about where do we get devices from when we have supply chain issues. So that were some pressures there. And then we'll, we'll talk about the really, really big one, which is how we navigate teaching and learning. Um, in an environment where many of us didn't do that in, in large scale in a remote way. So how do we get our faculty trained? Um, how do we get our students prepared? How do we have ready our technology to make sure we not only have the technology, but that we also have the bandwidth that te- that technology needed to run on to be effective? I think the other thing that we really weren't ready for is understanding where our staff are, where our faculty are, and where our students were as well. What I mean by that is where I came from is much like the, the state of Minnesota, where it's it's largely rural, right? And so from a broadband perspective, I think there were a lot of assumptions made. We'll give you this device, you'll be able to get connected. We didn't, we didn't do a lot of consideration and thought because we just didn't have the time 
to really think about, do they have connectivity for that device? And are they having to share a device with other family members? Did they have the broadband that they needed when you've got four or five, six, eight people needing broadband all at the same time? And what that meant, can they even afford it? Right. There's a lot of assumptions around, well, well, you should have it. And many thought that just because they had a phone, that that would be sufficient for teaching and learning, which we know it is not. But one thing I think is and was an opportunity, given the pandemic, and how quickly we moved, is that we, we clearly understood in higher education that we can. And, and many instances, we, we just we didn't. But this really forced us to, to really move forward and doing that in a meaningful way. And many did it pretty well. Um, and I'd like to think that so did Minnesota State. Um, our teams work very closely together on the academic side alongside our technology um, workforce. And just the, the level of collaboration, there weren't silos. We needed to do this work together and everyone understood that. And I think that there's a great opportunity in leveraging skill set um, across our divisions and really understanding and knowing what that looks like and potentially doing that much more closely than we ever did. And so I think there was great opportunity for working closer with, with our colleagues and um, really breaking down silos. And so I think there's a tremendous opportunity as we move forward with the way in which we support our workforce, the way in which we support teaching and learning, and what does it look like in the future? I think this has really shown us that our future looks very differently than we thought it it would look three years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And higher ed IT employees obviously are on some of the front lines in implementing some of this technology, some of those changes. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit to some of those opportunities really highlighted in the wake of the pandemic and what IT employees have to do in order to meet those goals? What's next on the IT to-do list? A couple of things. I think first and foremost is really understanding how our workforce is going to be able to work. What I mean by that is I'm thinking of telework and hybrid, who's going to be fully in the office, How do we support those who have returned to the office with an IT workforce that very much can be remote, right? How do we do desktop support and how do we do support for our our conference room, things like that when our staff is remote, right? And so how do we begin to have those conversations around really what the business needs are in a differing type of work environment? I think that's first and foremost. I think then for us as a system, you know, me coming and working for the system office, understanding how do we continue to support our campuses who are largely back on campus um, with the system office and and how do we do that work, right? And and work alongside them. I think the other thing we we have to be mindful of is there's very very much a sense of fatigue um, associated with Zooming all day. And how how do we create spaces and time for our staff to take breaks during the day? I used to tell my staff when we were really in the throes of COVID, I know it's easy to eat lunch at your desk because that's where you're working, but you've got to step away. Um, If the weather is nice, get outside, right? And I think one of the things that we as IT leaders really need to to do is really model that behavior. And so I I ensure I don't send emails after hours um, unless they are very much an emergency. And because I think staff sometimes feel obligated because, oh, you know, my, my boss sent me an email, I've got to respond. So I try to give them the space that they need, especially after hours, just to be with their family or do whatever it is they'd like to do after they leave work. I think the other thing IT leaders really need to be thinking about is, um, and around the modeling piece again, is sort of, so when I talk to my staff, I don't begin the conversation always with work. 
right? Asking them, how are you doing today? How's your family doing? Um, if there is a nuanced piece of information I know about them, maybe they're getting married or something like that, I ask them about that. And so it doesn't always have to be sort of work, 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 that we can, we can offer a little bit of humanity in there <laughs> and, and have those types of conversations. Um, some of the, the, the other sort of things that I do with my staff, and especially when our staff is back in the office, is I actually go to their offices, you know, and, and, and go to their meetings and say, you know, thank you for your work, mm-hmm. right? And, and not to say I'm, I'm going to your meeting to find out something that's going on work-wise, but just to say thank you. And I know this work is really hard work. And I appreciate all that you do every day. So I think those are some of the ways in which we as IT leaders can really support our staff and awake a very, very busy time. And I think that as we think about the technologies that we have, um, I think about the technologies that we might need to onboard and how do we support those. But I think there's a wonderful opportunity and Minnesota State did this well before COVID. So I think that they really took advantage of understanding and knowing the space that they wanted to go in to really help future-proof themselves is through our our ERP implementation that we're doing across our campus, which is NextGen. And out of that, you realize the opportunity that's there from moving from, I'll call them more legacy technologies to more relevant technologies like SaaS solutions, right? So we're coming off of a homegrown 20-plus year solution. And while there's sort of some level of comfort in that and, and knowing the ins and outs of that system, what we're doing is, is finding the ability to better service our students using more relevant technologies. And our, many of our students navigate through our system. So they might start at one institution and wind up at another and maybe stop and come back. And how do we create a more synthesized, smooth journey for them that that's not disjointed? And we can do that with technology. I think another thing that we can think about that has come out of the pandemic with our workforce is is really putting a broader lens on diversity and how we diversify our workforces, how we better understand our workforces. And one of the ways in which Minnesota State, again, really has done this really well is with this Equity 2030 initiative. And my colleague and I, my colleague over um, diversity and inclusion, she and I work together. And sometimes folks say, you know, why are the two of you going to campuses talking about technology and equity? And quite frankly, what we know is um, technology can, can really grow academic equity gaps. And that is not what we're trying to do. We're trying to close those academic um, equity gaps and quite frankly, close technology equity gaps for our campuses. And so I think it's, it's something that we really understand around who we serve in the Minnesota state system, um, which is a highly diverse population across the state. And, and how do we do that in the way in which they want us to be able to do that, not the way in which we envision um, that that they need to consume what we do, which is teaching and learning. Absolutely. And there there's so much to dig into there, but yeah. just looping back to to one of those pieces, working as a CIO within the system, can you talk a little bit about communicating across the system and figuring out how to not only express, you know, appreciation and make sure to provide that human connection, but also to find out any concerns, anything like that, that that might be contributing to any stress among employees. Myself at the system office, I work with a group called the CIO Advisory. It's a representative group of our two and four year sector. And there's there's a really nice opportunity, actually. I just met with them today. So we meet for a couple of hours each month. And really, they're an advisory group to the work that we do here at the system office. And we hear all all different types of things. And and it's important for us at the system office and as someone who's come from from 
20 plus years of working on campuses to really understand and know what's happening at the campus level. And so they help us understand what pressures that they're feeling. They help us inform our work that we, we do with our ERP implementation. They are a wonderful resource for helping us understand how we navigate our implementation and the things we need to be watching out for and being mindful of. And you know, also understanding how we talk about workload and capacity and how we get additional resources in and how we can leverage each other's skill and staff. I'm happy to say many of our campuses um, and their CIOs collaborate together to support each other as well. And, and so that's what sort of the Minnesota state system does, but we have a wonderful advisory group that really helps us understand and know what's happening because they are the boots on the ground. What are some pieces of perspective that you've heard from that advisory group kind of along this theme that, that helped you gain a little bit more of an understanding of what people are facing on campuses? Yeah, I think just the transition of, of getting back to work, I think that that's a whole transition in and of itself where people are, you know, they spent two plus years working from home um, and what it means to get back to the office. And, you know, for some, there's anxiety there about get, getting back and what that means and working with their staff on sort of quelling those anxieties. And um, I think also to just, you know, what does it mean to not have sort of a broader understanding of where things are going. And, you know, I think COVID has taught us to, to be flexible, to be agile, um, that we don't always have an answer right in the moment and we need to navigate. And I think we're still navigating as the pandemic is becoming more of an endemic. But most of us have dealt with our employers saying, we're going back to, to campus, we're going back to the system office. And then there's, then a surge happens and it's like, oh, well, maybe not, right? And so, I think those are some of the things that staff deals with, just the anxiety of coming back and what that means for them. I think also, too, there's some sort of consistency that happened during COVID, being at home and being with with children or elders or others in the home and not really knowing what that translates into as you almost now have to go go back and pivot and change your life, right? So I think those are the kinds of things we have to be mindful of as we are in an active implementation, being mindful of what campuses are currently doing and the needs that we have of those resources to support our implementation is something that we talk quite frequently a lot about understanding capacity, understanding what the change in work means for their campuses. And so we have a very strong change management arm around our implementation to help us navigate a lot of what we're hearing. Um, We do a lot of surveying of our campuses and just making sure we understand, okay, how ready are, are, is your campus to do this work? How ready do you feel we are in order for us to support this work? So there's a lot of touch points that happen to be able to understand what they're feeling, what their perspective is. And then once we understand that perspective, we use that data and information to really change our strategies so that we can better support them. Yeah, more on that ERP piece, what are some of the things that you've heard about ERP implementation, because I've, mm. I've talked to other campuses and other systems going through this and it, it's an undertaking. It's, it is it's a <laughs> transformation. It is, um, you know, it is a huge transformation. You know, one thing I, I really enjoy about the Minnesota state system, we are coming off of 
our homegrown solution is in single tenancy and we will walk into single tenancy with, with our, our, our new solution. So I thought it's actually pretty innovative, right? There are a lot of, a lot of systems are coming from sort of these disparate technologies having to come into one system and then move over. And that's not what we have to deal with. Nonetheless, it still is, it is quite a bit of work, right? And it's, it's managing change, it's managing culture, it's managing the new technology, and it's helping everyone sort of understand how we're going to be doing our work differently. And in a quest to do that through, through an implementation, it's, it's, it's a heavy undertaking um, to be able to manage all of that change all at the same time while they're not only doing their work to support the implementation, but they are managing an entire technology ecosystem, right? It's not the only thing that they're managing. And so being mindful of when and where we can put additional resources to offer more capacity for staff, we have done that. We have removed unnecessary meetings of staff as well, uh, so we can free up their capacity. And we've reset priorities as we've moved through our implementation. And those are just some of the ways in which we, we believe we're helping to lighten the load a bit as we move through our, our implementation. We are 15 months out from the first phase of our implementation of, of uh, finance and HR. And then um, our, our next step is to, to move into our student implementation, which will be pretty significant as well. And so we think about how do we manage morale with a lengthy project? How do we manage risk with a lengthy project? But one of the ways in which it's just really taking a, sim a simple humanistic way of approaching people, right? This is all about people, changes about people and having conversation and, and knowing that they're being heard and um, responding where we really can and in kind to lighten the load. I think the wonderful thing in the Minnesota state system is we've got staff who've been here for quite some time who are absolutely dedicated to this implementation and they're dedicated to Minnesota state. And so we continue to see that through this project and all the other work that we do. So that's that's great too. And then we've got we've got really really strong leadership, at, um, with our chancellor and our vice chancellor level, um, who get the work, and we do the work together. That's the other great piece of it as well. And so they see us coming as a really unified front to the work, and we're in meetings with them, and we strategize with them, and we help find solutions with them as well. Speaking to that, lightening the load, can you talk a little bit about some of the things the system has done either in the workplace or with operations to improve efficiency, line that load, maybe a little bit more of perspective of your perspective on unnecessary meetings, because I know that's a challenge that it is fans industries. <laughs> well, you know, I'd like to think it was my idea, but it was not my idea. <laughs> it, was, um, it was actually our program manager, you know, and he said, he's like, you know, it's simple where we, we think at times where we don't realize just how meeting, how many meetings are on the books and the meetings that we had on the books that are regular cadence meetings, do we still need those and why? So asking ourselves, do we need that? And one of the other really great things that we've been looking at is, are we leveraging the meetings that we currently have and bringing in topics that can come into those meetings as opposed to setting up yet another hour long meeting for a separate topic? So we're looking at that as well. So I think that's just, it seems very minor, but it actually is pretty impactful when you think about the amount of meetings that we have. I think the other thing too that we're looking at is, you know, we've been flexible with our staff and what their needs are. We are returning back to the system office, 
but we've done a lot of surveying of our staff and it, it's gone from, okay, what is it that you really want? But it's also, what is it that our business needs, right? What do we need to be able to support teaching and learning? Because the reality is if we are in a service industry, we serve constituents and we need to be there and we need to be able to support them. You know, be, just being mindful of staff who have family needs, who have elder care needs, um, healthcare needs, right? So our HR office really helps in that regard. And just being flexible and open and sort of not having a, well, everybody just comes back <laughs> type of mindset. And so we spent a lot of time as, as a cabinet sort of ideating around those scenarios, paying attention what others are doing in higher ed and, and even in corporate. I think a challenge is that Corporate tends to move a bit more quickly than, than we have in sort of setting our course forward. We've been very intentional and thoughtful, and that's why it's taking us a bit more time, because we do want to understand what it is um, we need of our workforce as we come back to the system office. So those are just some of the ways in which we've been thinking around work um, and, you know, we, we bring our staff back occasionally um, with our implementation partners as well for, the, for our ERP project. And we really utilize that time wisely, but also giving people the space that they need to be able to get their work done as well is, is hugely important. Allowing them to make their decisions, empowering them to make decisions to, to move forward and move quickly and listening to them when, when we might need to make some changes, right? So um, frequently our staff offers opportunity for us to look at things differently with their suggestions. And we talk about that and make changes where we can. Again, that was Jacqueline Malcolm with Minnesota State Colleges and Universities. I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is the Cutting Edge Podcast. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Higher education IT teams are balancing their institution's newfound comfort with online learning with more demand than ever for tech support. Bowden College Chief Information Officer Michael Cato said the main school is looking at its IT operations and making some adjustments to relieve people's workloads, like cutting down on bloated meeting schedules. We have watched and experienced um, over the last, I'll call it five to 10 years, um, the dramatic acceleration of a dynamic that has been there for a while, right? That technology is starting to influence so many more of the disciplines across higher education, right? So there was a while where um, you could identify fairly easily, like these are the more tech-centric disciplines. Mm. But with the um, invention of things like digital humanities, we're finding that history, art, you name the classical disciplines that have historically not thought of themselves as heavily technology influenced, becoming increasingly so. And what that has done for IT organizations in higher education is it's positioning us to be much more integrated across the, the broad spectrum of the curriculum in ways that we weren't before. And that's exciting in a lot of ways. Uh, but it also has the potential of creating increasing demand on the services we provide. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's long been something that's been a challenge, right? It, it, even as I acknowledge it's exciting, right? It does carry with it the weight of how do you meet these expanded needs, exp ever expanding needs? And I think that was the case for a while. And we started to, many organizations that I, um, my organization, other organizations that I work with, you know, this has been a top of, topic of conversation for some time. 
Uh, then the pandemic happened and more specifically, the shift to online learning for a number of institutions like ourselves who that's just not our background. Um, but then even as we go through that part of it, we are now on hopefully the other end of that, 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 um, that cycle. We're not out of the pandemic clearly, but we now have two years of experiences. And I think many institutions are now trying to think about how much of this can we carry forward with us. So you combine that dramatic acceleration um, that we were already experiencing with an even greater dramatic acceleration in the last two years, you know, and it's very easy for IT organizations to feel themselves right in the pinch of, of demands that they're just way outside anything they can keep up with. And so the number of requests that you get, the number of emails that you receive, the number of meetings you need to be in and conversations you need to have, um, if you're not careful, are just going to um, accelerate as well. So I think it's become an increase in demand, but um, I like to give a bit more context to what I mean when I say that, mm -hmm. that I think has been contributing to this, this dynamic for some time. Oh, for sure. Um, and, and can you kind of speak to, uh, and, and this isn't just during the pandemic, but as more departments realize some of those opportunities or see those demands, uh, what do those conversations look like, especially in a space that kind of historically and, and people still still say and are still fighting those silos but can you talk a little bit about communication there because i would imagine that's something that affects you at, at that managerial level and strategy level but also uh, your staff individually yeah and i appreciate that but what comes to mind for me is that there's you have to meet people where they are right and so those conversations can be very very different you may have some departments that maybe they already have that history of paying attention to how digital tools are changing what they do, or they've just jumped in with both feet and they've discovered something that's really exciting to them. And so they want to take on more of a sense of ownership of their destiny, right? They, they've already had that sense of ownership before they started using tools. And now with the tools, they want to continue that kind of independence. So the conversations there are about how can we build a partnership so that the issues that we know need to be addressed, um, information security becomes top among them, you're not really in a position to do that because that's not been your background. So how can we partner to make sure that those, those needs are being addressed, even as great, you'd like to take more ownership of this. Um, there's some areas that, that uh, would make more sense for this to be, uh, the decisions to be made, the work to be done much more closely to the business need, you know, my language of business need, even if it's an academic area. Those are very different conversations than an area that's new to it and is excited to take part, but is also nervous because they need a partner who can do more of the work for them because they've never had to do this before. So it's all brand new. And mm -hmm. then there's a world of variations on the theme in between those two ends of the spectrum, right? So sometimes you have some, you might have a department that's super excited about the new opportunity, but no matter how much you tell them, we're gonna need someone who's inside your organization who understands your business so they can really apply the technology and we can't do that for you. That, that those are really hard things to explain when someone has never gone through it before. So the conversations end up being really varied. And the trick is trying to understand where they are and meet them where they are. Mm -hmm. As you kind of set up for the future here and look at what's going to be sustainable moving forward, what conversations are you having uh, with your team about how to field some of these requests and how to maintain maybe some compassion in these conversations for, for those people who are nervous while still managing a, a full priority list. Yeah, and I love that you use the word compassion because I do think that um, compassion, empathy, 
for our constituents and our clients and also for ourselves. Those are really big, important aspects of being able to navigate the world we're in now, right? Because um, if I'm not empathetic to and working to understand their perspective, then it's very easy for me to make assumptions about what they should or shouldn't know. Mm -hmm. And also if I'm not compassionate to myself to understand, there's no way I can keep up with the increased demand with the processes I had historically, then you end up trying to apply the same approaches that served you historically to a situation that's just very new. And that sense of burnout, at least from my experience, it's not just the inability to get things done the way you're used to, um, it's also that sense of, of critique that can come with that, right? That I should be able to do this, or I, I used to be able to do it and now I can't. And the difference between the two is the thing that gives me a lot of self-criticism, right? So I think the compassion piece is such an important um, aspect to it. I really appreciated that you used the word. Does that kind of get to what you're asking? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like compassion is is so much of the conversations that I have. It, it kind of boils down to that a, a lot of the time. Can you talk a little bit about maybe an example of a process that got tweaked as a result of managing some of this workload or, or maybe being able to just better field it? Two come to mind. The first one was a bit more dramatic. Uh, what we, like many IT organizations, had built an intake process for how someone asked for a new service, right? And the goal was to make sure that we had uh, clarified the needs, you know, definitely a big part of it, but also um, clarified the sense of priority for the decision makers in that respective area, right? So we tried to break the cycle of IT just doing something because someone asks us to, but making sure this actually matches the, the prioritization of the person who's responsible for the budget for that area, as an example. When COVID happened, when our pandemic responses started, we realized that those traditional processes just took too long for us to move as quickly as we needed to, especially because we were in the face of ambiguity initially when there was so much we just didn't know. How long would this last? What would we need to do in response and so forth? And so we short-circuited a number of those processes, appropriately so, and we're clear with ourselves and the institution of what we were doing. And it was thrilling at first, right? Because suddenly a whole lot of decisions that, you know, higher education is not known for making decisions quickly. And suddenly we were, you know, left and right. We were knocking things out and getting things done, trying things. Some things, you know, we knew we were, everything wasn't going to work. So some things we try and, you know, that language of try and fail and learn from those. It, just, it was amazing, but it was also unsustainable to your earlier question, right? Because that pace will burn everybody out if we're not careful. So switching gears back out of that has been one of the great challenges over the last year, especially for us. Now, not that because we're out of the pandemic, but realizing we can't keep going that way because we need to make sure that we are following the processes we had originally that were designed to document things properly, to make sure that we were planning ahead, that we weren't putting out multiple versions of the same overlapping service, that kind of thing. So trying to shift gears back to something or develop something that's new. So necessarily not going back to what we had before, but finding a new version of working has been one of the things that we've been working hard on. So I said two, but I'll stop with that one. I think that's a perhaps a good example. I hope it speaks to what you're asking. No, it absolutely does. So it's kind of that that balance between embracing all these new opportunities and not wanting to leave behind that pace, but making sure that that all your bases are covered and you're not working in kind of that emergency mode. I, I said in the beginning, maybe the first couple of months we were in the COVID response, that this was playing into the firefighter mentality. And it's been something I have spent much of my career trying to you know, lead organizations not to do, right? But it's really satisfying to find a need and to be able to fix it quickly. Um, and, but it was just realizing if we kept doing that, we were going to build 
solutions that were not sustainable and really burn ourselves out as well. So while it was satisfying, it was something that we knew we needed to shape and be intentional about. Oh, absolutely. I love that that image of of the firefighter because uh, I would imagine it is it is so satisfying to kind of fix things so much faster, but very, very hard work. In the conversations that you've had with your staff, what are some of the needs that they're expressing moving forward and some of the things that they're saying, hey, this is something that I want or something that changed during the pandemic I want to keep so that my my work is more sustainable moving forward. It's interesting, the conversation we've been having lately, and this was maybe three weeks ago, based on a couple of conversations I had, I had an increasing sense the way our organization is experiencing work-life balance, the, the term we often use, was starting to shift and not in a good way. And so I did an impromptu survey, one of those anonymous survey tools with the participants in one of our um, our standing weekly meetings. So they were um, about 75% of the organization was in the session. And so it was just really, it was, I thought it would be a, at least a useful indicator of where we are, right? To get the pulse of the organization. And I had two big questions, three questions. How would you rate your, how you were experiencing work-life balance now? And it was on a five point scale. And then uh, what are some things that are contributing positively to that? And what are some things that are contributing negatively to it? And it was intriguing that about uh, 40% of the organization said they rated a four or five, five being ideal on that work-life balance. So one way to read it is great, you know, 40% of participants feel that's actually pretty good, but the remaining 60% were split. And there was about 20% that was the lowest rating, that gave the lowest rating. So for me, it was an indication that, okay, I was right. There's something going on that we really need to figure out how to address. It was a responses to the other two questions that were just really intriguing to me because the number one response by far of what's contributing positively has been hybrid work. Some mm-hmm. variation of that answer. It was an open text response, but they could upvote each other's responses. And it was really useful because I didn't see them and just to see what came out naturally. And that hybrid work and the flexibility that came around it was number one. And the number one contributor, again, by far to being contributing negatively, excuse me, has been meetings and things related to meetings. And so we are, we actually convened or convening a conversation in a couple of weeks where we're going to explore both of those topics and see what are some options that we can put on the table to rethink the way we do meetings in the organization and what might be some approaches that we can do to address work-life balance. One of the most helpful things for me out of that conversation was a team member suggested there might be two broad categories of strategies on work-life balance. Individual things I can do but organizational things as well. And and we felt we need to address both because if all we do is provide strategies to address it as an individual and not take on the areas where the organization has to step in, then it's going to feel like I'm just putting more on, yet more on you, right? You're already stressed and now I'm gonna give you something else you need to do to lower your stress, right? As opposed to addressing the way the organization is gonna help as well. So longer way of answering your question. I apologize. I'm known for giving long answers at times. I hope that wasn't too bad. No, that was that was great information. And and meetings is something that I've heard come up multiple times in, in reimagining those meetings. Um, I'm, I know that you said that you're kind of ahead of this broader conversation, but um, and there's no silver bullet here. I don't know anybody who's fully figured out when to schedule a meeting and when not to. Um, but what has been particularly helpful to you in understanding um, how to balance having these meetings in this collaborative time with giving employees the flexibility to, to do their work? 
Yeah, and and I and this is me. I'm st I'm stumbling a little bit here because I don't want to give the impression to anyone that we've solved it, right? So I, right. I can give you a couple of ideas and some things that we're working on. That's the best I have right now. Mm -hmm. I, we have recognized that one challenge we have culturally here, organizational culture wise, is we have a culture of everyone wants to be in every meeting because no one wants to feel that they're left out. And it plays out in uh, some really interesting ways. And one of them is when we need to convene a meeting about a specific topic, the temptation is to invite a really long list of people, even though they don't all need to be there. But the flip side to that has been, the alternative would be um, some version of us having a, a running document where updates can be put. I don't want more emails, so I'm not fond of, do, of emailing updates, but some way that teams can express, here are the things that are going on in our area, so if just getting updates, we don't need to call a meeting for that. But our experience has been, my experience has been over, not just here, but for the last eight or 10 years, most people don't read those updates. Mm -hmm. You know, if you post them in environments where you can see the impressions and see the engagement, you quickly realize most people don't read those posts. And so they'll complain that they don't know what's going on and it's because they haven't read the place, right? And so one of the ways out of it is going to require us to commit ourselves if we're going to use another approach to share updates, you have to take responsibility to absorb those and go read those for yourself so that we don't have to convene meetings for that. Again, that was Michael Cato, Chief Information Officer with Bowden College. The Cutting Edge Podcast is available at cuttingedgepodcast.com as well as everywhere you get your podcasts. This show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Until next time, I'm Emily Bamford.